Welcome to The Balance. My name is Catlin Tucker, and this podcast is presented by StudySync. Today, my guest is Angela Watson. She's a productivity and mindset specialist. She's an author, a podcaster, a motivational speaker, and she's been supporting teachers since 2003 and really challenging the narrative of overworked, exhausted, and unappreciated teachers and trying to create real solutions to help teachers kind of embrace a new identity of themselves that is healthy and balanced. So she is the perfect guest to have on this podcast, and I'm thrilled to welcome her today. Well, today I am joined by Angela Watson. I'm so excited that we get to talk all about productivity and mindset and balance um, in terms of education. I know this is going to be such a great episode for teachers, especially at this moment. And so I would love for you to start by just telling us a bit about your journey in education and how you became a productivity and mindset specialist. Thanks for having me, Catelyn. Um, Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this too. I was a classroom teacher for 11 years, and then I moved into instructional coaching, and um, I published my first book back in 2008. And my focus during that time really was on classroom management, just Mm -hmm. logistics, systems, routines, all those kinds of things that you just have to sort of figure out on your own. As a teacher, no one really tells you how to make it work. Right. (laughs) Um, And I really enjoyed helping teachers with that part. And As I started doing more of that kind of thing, I realized that we were spending a lot of time in education talking about what teachers do, but not nearly enough, in my opinion, about who teachers are, Mm. like how you see the world, your mindset, your confidence levels, your personality, your temperament. All of these things impact how you show up for kids. Right. So that's part of the reason why you know, when the powers that be try to standardize or teacher-proof teaching, like what an insulting term, right? Right. (laughs) That's why it doesn't work. Right. Because they could give you, Catlin, the same lesson plan they give me and the way that we would implement it and the results we get would not be identical because the personality of the instructor impacts how the lesson's taught and how it's received. It impacts the relationships with students, the rapport, the class culture. And I found all of those kinds of things much more fascinating than how to improve test scores or really anything related to curriculum. So I began to really study and reflect and read and most importantly, listen to teachers Mm -hmm. and focus on the mindset of an effective teacher. How does an effective teacher think? How do we root out bias? How do we examine our worldviews? How do we make sure we're showing up in the classroom free from emotional baggage and healed from trauma so that we can be the people that our students really need us to be, which is our true and authentic self? So that's what I'm really passionate about. And that's, that's where my journey has taken me. Oh, that's so interesting. So I hear so much about classroom management and I always kind of have this knee-jerk response against like managing other humans and always mm. gravitating more toward culture building and how do we, you know, foster those relationships so that we care about each other and hopefully that mitigates some of that management concern. But when I'm listening to you talk, so much of what I think about is really just that personality and that presence that teachers have and the impact on these environments that they create and that mindset. I feel like I do a lot of work as well around mindset because you can't really shift practices if we don't have a clear understanding of what's like driving our decision making. So I think that's fascinating. Yes. 
So I know you have launched um, the 40-hour workweek program. And I'm really curious, like what inspired you to launch that program? Like what did you see in education that was making you feel like this is needed? We need to talk about (laughs) this in education. Mm -hmm. It it was all very organic. Like I said, I started off with classroom management about, you know, 15 years ago, then moved into the mindset piece. And I started moving into productivity as well after the mindset work, because I realized in my work with teachers that there's really only so much mindset work you can do when you're dealing with systemic issues. Mm. And a lot of folks in the uh, mindset industry perpetuate messages of, if you're unhappy, then it's your fault. If you're anxious or stressed, then you just need to change your thinking. It's your thoughts that are holding you back. Mm. And that kind of toxic positivity where it's like, you know, good vibes only, your well-being is entirely within your control. Whether or not they're actually saying it, some do, some just sort of imply it. I think it leaves out a lot of important information for people. And I think it's especially dangerous when you're talking to women, when you're talking to people of color, when you're talking to groups of people who are dealing with institutional norms that aren't designed to support them. And the number one problem that I just kept hearing about from teachers was that they didn't have enough time to do everything that needed to be done. Mm -hmm. And you can change the way that you think about that problem. You can examine perfectionistic mindsets, uh, ways that you're overcomplicating your work, and and we'll get into that for sure. But the problem's not all in your head, right? Mm -hmm. Like a big part of the problem is that more and more demands are being placed on teachers every single year, and support and resources are not being provided. So it's left up to individual teachers to just figure it out. So that's why I started a full-year professional development program called the 40-Hour Teacher Workweek. And this runs from July through June. It's a full year, so you get ongoing PD throughout the year. I started that in 2015, and we've had more than 41,000 teachers go through the program. Wow. It is basically professional and personal development all in one, and it covers both the mindset shifts that you need to make in order to find a sustainable approach to your work, but also the practical things that you can do to get organized, to prioritize tasks, to manage email, to simplify assessment and so on. Because I think figuring out how to simplify and streamline your workflow is really difficult to do when you're in the middle of it all. You really need somebody who can see the forest and the trees and kind of cut through to what's most important for you and show you a proven system that you're not having to do on your own. And that's the kind of thing that, again, is just not provided for teachers in general. In general, they're supposed to just figure it out themselves. So you have 200 essays to grade and your planning time is 30 minutes and you have 20 other tasks to do in that planning period. Well, just Mm -hmm. figure it out. Right. That's not okay with me. I want to give teachers the tools to help them figure it out and advocate for systemic changes so that teachers aren't put in that position in the first place. So I want to dig into a couple of things you said. So I know there this is a big topic, but if you had to kind of give a, a overview or some shed some light on what you think that the, the mindset piece is and the shifts that you're really trying to focus on in your work with teachers, what would you say? I think reflection is really key, mm-hmm. really thinking about Um, what is working for you and what's not working for you. And that's something that we tell teachers all the time, and they, of course, (laughs) don't have time to do it. But it really is something where um, you have to look at what is really giving you an impact Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of stuff that we do that just really isn't making that big of a difference for kids, but it's extremely time-intensive for the teacher. So um, being really mindful about what's giving you a good return on your investment of time and what's not, I think, is really the key. That's the thing that holds everything else together. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Just being that reflective practitioner. But you're right. As soon as we get busy, like that is the first thing that typically falls to the wayside on a teacher's list of things to do. Mm-hmm. So you talk a lot about those systemic pressures in education that lead to a lot of this imbalance for teachers. So what are some of the most significant forces you see teachers facing that you feel are either unrealistic or just cause them to continually struggle with this work-life balance? You know, I mean, I think we've touched on a little bit of this. And, and one thing that we haven't really talked about yet is what happened with covid because I feel like we saw all of this taken to new heights in yes. summer 2020, you know, where where teachers were going to have to social distance in the classroom and keep kids safe from the virus, in many cases with almost no guidance from mm-hmm. the district. People were crowdsourcing health protocols. Like, how are we going to pass out manipulatives? How are we going to collect papers? And the stress of having to figure out everything yourself and just make do and also pay for the solutions out of your own pocket. It's just completely over the top. And that's always been happening in education. When I saw that happening with a pandemic where literally lives were on the line, where teachers making the wrong decisions could result in horrible outcomes, like this just this is not sustainable. This is untenable. This level of pressure on individual teachers is just too much. And I feel like on top of that, teachers are also being told that they have to stay positive right. and look on the bright side. And of course, you do also have to keep your energy levels elevated for students. And I think for short periods of time, it's possible. But the pandemic has gone on way longer than any of us thought it was going to last March. You know, we thought this was going to be two weeks. Right. <laughs> or a lot of us thought, you know, yeah, we'll be fine by, by you know, this past school year. And I think trying to keep up the enthusiasm and the pace for this long is just extraordinarily difficult. And that's very serious to me. I think that school districts ignore teacher burnout at their own peril. If you mm-hmm. want someone to stick around, then you have to value them. You have to treat them like human beings who have needs and opinions and preferences and ideas of their own. They're not just there to solve problems for you. So I try to be really human-centered in my resources where I'm trying to support the whole teacher so that teachers can support the whole child. It's about so much more than academics to me. Yeah. And it's fascinating because I don't even think a lot of teachers feel like they get to be problem solvers in this situation. I think they're told like, here's the schedule the district decided on and teachers are like, okay, not only am I doing all the stuff you just said about keeping kids safe and trying to keep myself safe so that I can go home to my families and feel like I'm not putting them at risk, but I'm also like trying to explore all of these new instructional models to try to figure out how to reach kids. I'm hearing about concerns about learning loss. And apparently I have to like figure out how to meet those concerns. It's just, it's so much. And this burnout and teacher engagement is clearly something I'm really interested in. That's what my own research was focused on. And teacher engagement and student engagement are linked. And so as student engagement has dropped this year and teacher engagement has dropped and all these pressures are contributing it, I just really also worry about teachers' mental, emotional, physical health. I worry we're going to lose a lot of people from this profession. Yes. And I hope that that is one thing that sort of comes to light for districts that, you know, they may have been able to put SEL um, on the back burner in the past, Mm -hmm. but it's just not going to be possible anymore, not only for students, but also for teachers. Exactly. Exactly. Starting with teacher. I think you have to like really do that work with teachers so that they can feel healthy and so they understand the benefits and then, yeah, extend it to students. But I don't 
see that happening as much. I see the SEL focus more on the students and less on the teachers. Mm -hmm. So there are just myriad tasks that teachers either feel like they should do or like they have to do when actuality, maybe there are things that they don't actually have to do. And I know this is something that, that we've talked about. What are some of those kind of things that you hear or you hear about, you see in practice that fall into that that category of teachers feel like a responsibility to do it. And maybe you're having them question, like, do you really need to do this? Is this the best place for you to put your time and your energy? You know, I would love to just rattle off like a nice <laughs> universal list that applies to everyone. That's what that's what people want, right? Like just give me something really quick and easy. But you know, it's it's a personal process and it goes back to that piece of reflection. Um, I think often one of the easiest places to start is to look for ways that you are going above and beyond what's required without seeing a commensurate impact for kids. So if, let's say your district has a policy that you should reply to all emails within 24 hours, but you're keeping notifications on your phone or you're just refreshing email once an hour, well, that's not expected of you. Mm -hmm. You can change that habit so that you're checking maybe, let's say, three times a day and you're responding to all the emails in batches instead of one by one as they come in. Maybe you're blocking off times in your schedule where you go through and you get, you know, respond to all of those different messages. Will some parents expect an immediate response? Yes, especially if you train them to expect that. Yep. So if we email someone and they always get back to us within an hour, and then one time they don't reply to the next day, you you get like indignant, right? You're like entitled to a faster response. Wait, this person always gets right back to me. Mm-hmm. So I think deciding in advance about your boundaries and communicating them to families and students is key. Tell them upfront how long you're going to take for things and build in a little extra time there. So if they know the standard's 24 hours and you happen to reply in 12 hours, then you're doing better than what they expected. And that's going to make them happier. And these kinds of boundaries are just absolutely necessary. I I know people are listening to this thinking, no, but I have to get back to that kid right away. They have a question about their homework immediately. But you are one person. You can't solve every problem for every family. There's only so much time unless you have a dedicated secretary who just responds to email. Like (laughs) you have other stuff you have to balance here. And, you know, responding to email is just not your number one priority, even in your job. There's just other tasks for kids that that are bigger than that. They're going to have to learn how to deal with, you know, a, a morning response time and an afternoon response time or something like that. So I think thinking that's one example of something they can think about. Yeah. And I, I've said this before, but email is just a boomerang. I feel like you throw it out and you yep. get one back. It's not like, okay, I'm done with that email. I can move on. So I think your your note about choosing a couple windows of time during the day to respond is great. And then I've sent emails to teachers where they have set up an automatic response that tells you, hey, I'll get back to you in 24 or 48 hours. And you you feel like you got a response. Now you have a realistic expectation and Mm -hmm. you're not obsessing about like, when is this teacher going to get back to me? So some of those little like workflow and norms, I could see having a huge impact on teachers. Mm -hmm. And you know, another area is grading. You know, this year is a, that's a big one for you. (laughs) Yes, a huge one. Um, I mean, this year is a little wonky. Things are a little different. But in general, I think many teachers take way more grades than what is required. And tell me what what you think about this philosophy, how you approach it. But 
you know, my district, every district I've worked for required two grades per subject per week. So I was an elementary teacher. I taught all subjects and I needed to take two grades in each one every single week. But I had colleagues who were taking a grade in every subject every day and they spent all their evenings grading papers for eight-year-olds. Mm-hmm. It was craziness to me. Mm-hmm. So I looked for other ways to keep kids engaged and give them some accountability for what they were learning. And I looked for multi-day assignments. So the kids didn't just finish everything in 20 minutes and create this massive stack of papers for me to grade. Right. Bigger projects. And then maybe just, I graded one aspect of that project. So it didn't even take me that long to assess. So, I mean, my advice to teachers listening to this is examine the approach to your workload and consider what things you're doing that are making the work harder than it needs to be. There's a lot of fear around messing up, not doing something right, because it's a serious job. But you can't let fear be your driver or your motivator when you're making decisions about how to spend your time. You've got to look for things that make the biggest impact for kids. Give 100% to those areas and then streamline or simplify the rest. And grading can be a really big area for that. Oh, grading is such a drain. And I feel I've been having these conversations with teachers for several years now and write a lot about it in my last book, Balance with Blended Learning. But I think the problems I saw with grades pre-pandemic, you know, the putting points on everything, using grades as a carrot to get kids to do the work, not only is Mm -hmm. that exhausting, but then we get into that gray area of like, is this grade really a reflection of what this student can do in terms of skills and ability? Or is this grade a reflection of compliance because we're just putting points on everything? And I think when the pandemic happened and teachers were so, you know, they're so concerned about student engagement and students doing the work. And there was a huge dip in engagement and work completion and, you know, just kids showing up on a lot of different levels that then it almost went into overdrive where there was even more kind of giving points for just everything, showing up to Mm -hmm. Zoom, completing every assignment. And for me, I always ask teachers, like, take a step back. Why are we grading this? You know, Think about the purpose of this work and whether this feedback or these points are are really the best use or the best place to put your finite time and energy. And I work with a lot of teachers like you who are in districts that have these minimum grade requirements. And it sounds like you're kind of taking this approach as well. I'll tell teachers, you know, kids might work on a piece. If you start to really identify like what standards and skills do I want to assess in this piece, then assess those two standards and skills and then enter them separately into the grade book. It actually creates Mm -hmm. way more clarity for students and their parents about what's specific skills they're really demonstrating growth and they're strong in relation to and which they need to spend more time and energy on. So I do think there's like this strategic thinking that can happen around some of these problematic workflows that can help us to just free up some of that time and energy that quite frankly, we need to like recharge and rest so that we can show up for kids. That's right. Yeah. So I love that you're kind of helping teachers to to take that look at things that are feeling like a real drain in terms of time and energy. But I think what's interesting about this and, and your work in particular is education is such a unique kind of space. And I'm you have to be thinking about this all the time. Like, why do you think there is so much pressure on teachers to go so far above and beyond what we we would expect of a person in like another field? I think we just hold teachers to this crazy standard. And I have no idea kind of where that comes from. 
Yeah, it's it's a complex issue because there's so many different things. I mean, one of it is that, you know, it, it is a uh, woman-dominated field mm-hmm. and the expectations for unpaid labor and emotional labor for women and uh, in women-dominated fields such as nursing is another example, right. um, you know, where workers are really just not um, fully valued. And, and, and um, you know, I think that's, that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is that... Um, you know, the stakes are really high. We're talking about kids' education. It is serious work. So it's not like, you know, if you work in a restaurant, you get someone's order wrong. That's very different from, you know, maybe not doing everything that needs to be done for kids. And so I think that can kind of create this this fear-based culture where we're just constantly scared of messing up. Mm. And then, of course, you're trying to please students and families and administrators, um, which have you know, three completely different perspectives. And sometimes what they want is conflicting with one another. Right. Um, and then you add to it, a lot of teachers are people pleasers. You know, a lot of women in general are socialized to, um, you know, want approval from other people, want other people to like us. It's difficult to feel like you're letting people down, especially when you really care deeply about your work. So there's a lot of different factors there with it. But I think another one that we don't hear about quite as much is about what happens when teachers create boundaries. What, For example, if a teacher says, okay, I'm only required to be on one committee, and so therefore, if only one committee is required, I'm not going to volunteer for additional extras. Well, guess who gets stuck with the additional committee work? <laughs> Your colleagues <laughs> right. who don't draw the same boundaries as you. And that's especially true for teachers who don't have children. Um, and to some extent, to some who are not married, sometimes it's just assumed they have all this free time on their hands. Oh, you don't have a family, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So, you know... You must be happy to just pick up the slack for everybody else. You know, you must not have a lot going on in your personal life. So there, there can be these different pressures on teachers according to their life circumstances to kind of pick up the slack for other people. And if you create boundaries, you know, you say, like, I, I just can't do any extra, then it puts extra work on your colleagues. And these are your allies. These are the people you want to be in solidarity with. Mm-hmm. So this is why we can't just rely on individual actions and individual changes. This is why we need collective solutions. Um, you know, like I'm wondering, why are there so many tasks in a school that are unpaid? Yeah. Why are we requiring teachers to volunteer their free time for these things anyway? These should be well-paid stipends. So teachers are actually fighting to be on the committees because it's such a great way to earn extra money and they don't have to have a second job. Exactly. And if that's not the case, then we need collective action. We need solidarity among teachers to say, we can't do this. This is too much. And it is causing our most important job, which is planning high quality lessons and assessing student learning. It's causing that to suffer. It's Mm -hmm. a distraction from the real work that I am here paid to do. Right. So we're going to have to reimagine everyone's favorite buzzword right now. We're going to have to reimagine <laughs> the way we do committees in the school. We're going to have to have solidarity with our colleagues. So they're joining in and you're coming up with different solutions instead of just saying, well, I'm not going to do it. I guess someone else is going to have to. You're on your own. Sometimes it does come to that. But if you're struggling to draw boundaries because you know it's going to create extra work for your coworkers, then look for ways that you can choose collective boundaries. I love that. And your point about the non-existent or poorly paid stipends is something that just blows my mind in education because you think again about any other industry, if you're asking somebody to do more work, spend more time, then you compensate them. And I know so many educators through the years, myself included in the early years, who picked up extra work, whether it was bartending, waiting tables, acting as an independent tutor for other kids in other districts. It's, you know... 
it's really hard to make ends meet. And I'm teaching in the Masters of Arts for Teaching program at Pepperdine right now. And I told my young students and they're all first career, like this is their first career, they're going to be teachers. I said, you know, have those boundaries. If you're asked to do a bunch of extra stuff, don't be scared to say no, or I really need to focus on getting my curriculum this first year or two settled before I commit to a lot of these extra things. Because it's not just the the teachers who don't have families and that get asked those things. It's also those new teachers who are floundering just because this is also, um, they're in these early stages of teaching and they have so much to do. And I worry about overburdening them. And then again, driving them away from this profession. Yes. And I I think about grade level heads too, or grade level chairs. A lot of times you kind of get voluntold to do that because (laughs) if you've got a bunch of new teachers or someone new to the grade level and someone else, you know, who's got a lot going on in their personal life, maybe they're not in good health, who just can't do it, it falls to one person. And, you know, the, the grade chairs that, that I know, for the most part, I mean, if they if they divide up the stipend they're getting by the amount of hours they're working, it's oh like gosh. eight bucks an hour or something. Yeah. It's such an insult and it's so much pressure. You're the, the go-between between administrators and your mm-hmm. colleagues and, you know, you're always the bad guy to someone. And it's just, it's, it's so stressful. It's like, we've got to come up with a different way. There has to be another way to do this. And I think that the, the root of that has to come from teachers standing in solidarity and saying, we don't want to put that responsibility on one member of our team for eight bucks an hour. It's just not worth it to us. And so our team's not going to have a grade level chair. We're going to do something different this year. And we're going to find a way to meet the same goals without relying on that old outdated structure mm-hmm. that just doesn't work. Yeah. I I agree. Some of this really does have to be some ground from the ground up kind of. I love the the idea of being in solidarity with your your colleagues and really trying to figure out better ways of doing things that just quite frankly aren't working. Mm -hmm. So what proactive steps do you recommend teachers take to kind of create more balance in their approach to this challenging work? So we talked a little bit about email. We talked a little bit about grades and being a reflective practitioner um, to try to understand what's working and what's not. But is there any other real clear steps that you recommend teachers consider as they kind of struggle with this, this, the imbalances of this profession? Well, you know, I think in terms of the 2020-2021 the school year, we're at the end here now. Mm-hmm. We may just need to be just sort of like powering through. But I encourage teachers to really seize this moment in preparation for the 2021-2022 school year because we are at a crossroads here. We're going to be looking at what does post-pandemic teaching look like? And we have to be really, really careful not to default back to those old norms. Mm -hmm. It's not like schooling was working so great for all teachers and kids (laughs) before the pandemic. We cannot return to that. So I really encourage educators to seize this moment, seize this is the time to reimagine. This is the time as we start to kind of get back on a more long-term path where we're going to be hopefully you know, putting things in place that aren't going to be changing every three weeks. Right. As we think about that, what is that going to look like? And it, this is going to have to come from practices of reflection. Part of why I think the beginning of this past school year was such a disaster was because no one had time to get alone and really think. There was just constant, like, you know, board meetings and meetings with this person and, you know, let's try this, let's do this. Well, this, you know, political pressure to do mm-hmm. to open or not open. It was just so much going on that no one really had that time to step back and think, what is actually going to make sense for teachers and kids? And I think we really have to think about that 
in our own work too, because the confidence to say, I'm not doing things that way anymore, or I'm just not doing that, I'm going to find a better way. That confidence comes from knowing that you are doing things that make the biggest impact for kids that you're really doing a good job for students. And if you don't uncover what those practices are, the things that really do make a difference for kids, then you're always going to feel guilty when you create boundaries. So that might be a practical starting place for teachers to think about. And again, maybe not till summer. You need to be in this headspace (laughs) where you have some distance from the problem, where you've had a break from it in order to be able to think of creative solutions. So I would recommend that teachers plan to do this reflection process. And it doesn't have to be in the super structured way where you have like six hours you know, to come up with this formal plan. My best ideas come when I'm just like going for a walk. Right. Just make sure you have some space in your summer for your mind to wander and do this reimagining that we all want to happen, but no one's had the mental bandwidth to do. Think about what practices were really stressful for you this year and that you want to find ways to streamline. Think about the parts of your job that you absolutely hate. What were the things that were so draining? And focus on how to create boundaries there and simplify. And if you want support and you want practical strategies, you can check out the 40-hour Teacher Workweek program. It's going to be starting up this summer, and it does walk you step-by-step through the challenges of each month of the year, from back to school, to report card and conference time, to rebooting after the winter holidays, to entering ending the school year strong. So you don't have to do this alone, regardless of whether you join my program or not. Make sure you are finding even a small community of like-minded educators so that you can share the workload and you can brainstorm solutions together because we cannot go back to the way things were and we cannot continue on the path that we're going down now. We're not going to be able to keep our best teachers unless we really do get serious about reimagining. And the reimagining can't come from the top. We can't sit back and wait for superintendents or politicians or other people far removed from the classroom to make these decisions. This stuff has to come from teachers. A teacher listening to this, you are the only person who really knows what's going on in your classroom. You're the only one who really understands that workload. So be prepared to bring solutions to the table. Come up with things that are going to work for you and your kids and don't put that responsibility on someone else to solve the problems for you. You're probably not going to like their solutions. Your solutions are going to be better if you can get the bandwidth to come up with those solutions. So really take this summer to reflect. Yeah. And reflect with colleagues. I know we talked about this when I was on your podcast that solutions designed for teachers by people who are not in classrooms are problematic. And mm-hmm. so if you're not loving those solutions, like like you're saying, get together with colleagues, identify what's not working, what's a huge drain, what, you're, what you dread, right? And figure out how do we want to reimagine it? How would we rethink this so it works better for us? And let's propose something to administrators. And I think we were chatting about like, they'd probably be relieved to have a clear plan designed by teachers because then there's not that, you know, there's not the pushback when it's presented because it came from the people who are facing these problems every single day. That's right. There's buy-in from the very beginning. And this is not just one more thing. This is not just leaving it to teachers to figure it out. It's saying, I'm, I want to come up with a solution that's going to work for me and bringing some different ideas to the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw that in your newsletter, which I get, that you're kind of doing this, is it once a week or you're or once a month, you're a positive message for teachers. It must be weekly right now. Is that right? 
Yes, it is the Power Through series. So um, every Wednesday morning for six weeks, it's just a five-minute audio message or else you can read it sent to you via email. Just a little bit of encouragement, motivation, refocusing on what really matters. And teachers can start it whenever they want to. So, you know, the end of the school year is different for different people. So I'm beginning it early. Some people will get to go through the whole thing twice before the end of the year. (laughs) Um, It's really up to them, but you can... um, go to truthforteachers.com forward slash power hyphen through, and that will take you to that resource if you want to sign up to start it. Um, I just wanted to give teachers a little bit more encouragement because, you know, power through means to continue in a strong and determined way until Mm -hmm. the end of something, even when it's difficult. And I think that is the task ahead of us to finish up the school year. We've got to just power through. (laughs) No, I loved it. I was reading it and I was like, this is such... I love this offering, just something positive, continually supporting teachers, because I do think we're so close to the end of the year. It's really about as strong a finish as we can make it. And then know we'll have summer to hopefully rest, recharge, reflect, reimagine, and then start next year in a different, maybe better place. That's right. So I always give my guests the last word when it comes to tips for finding balance. So is there anything that you have found particularly helpful? And this can be professional, it can be personal, it can be both um, in terms of striving for or creating more balance in your own life. I'm going to really hammer home this idea of being truly intentional about how you use your time. We feel trapped in this cycle oftentimes of responding to whatever's urgent. And so we don't have that mental bandwidth or the time to do big picture thinking, but that big picture thinking is critical to feeling balanced and to really having a sense of satisfaction in your work. Taking time to regroup on the evenings and weekends gives your mind space to process what is worthwhile and what's not. All of us have practices that can be eliminated or streamlined, but if we don't truly see the value of that reflection process, then we won't prioritize the time it takes to do it. So that would be my challenge to everyone listening to this is to carve out time this summer, actually block off days or part of a day in your summer in which you can just reflect when you can just be. And it might be moving around. It might be being outside, um, you know, just a little bit of space where you're not required to do other things. And you can think about what you want and need in the coming school year and create a plan for yourself so you can really thrive instead of just showing up and waiting to see what happens, you know, what's it going to be like, decide what it's going to be like for you. Start creating some of these boundaries, start reimagining some of the things that you want to change and be prepared to start the new school year full of solutions that are going to work for you and your kids. I love that. Thank you so much for joining me today, Angela. It was a real treat to get to talk to you. Thanks, Catlin. This is wonderful. So a big takeaway for me today in this conversation was really around teachers creating boundaries and at times when needed, working with other teachers in solidarity to either push 
back against systemic expectations that are really unrealistic and even crafting their own solutions. So instead of waiting for the powers that be or administration to solve problems that teachers are facing every day, can teachers come together, say, this is something that's not working for us. Let's reimagine it together. Let's put a plan together that we can propose to administration so that we can start to advocate for ourselves and create real change. Another thing that really resonates with me is this idea of creating space for ourselves in our lives to allow our minds to wander, to engage in that creative thinking about our lives, our professional work, because it's in that creative mental space where we are going to generate ideas, we're going to generate solutions. And so just making that time for ourselves, and maybe it's not until the summer, but whenever it is, putting it in the calendar, taking a walk, meditating, spending some time alone, and really thinking about how we reimagine our approach to whatever is causing these imbalances in our lives. I'm going to end this episode with two teacher tips. And the first is around email and blocking off two windows of time each day to look at email. And then if you find yourself sending a lot of the same type of emails, look at a text expander uh, Chrome extension where you can create little codes that will expand into these email templates to save you time. So I actually use the text expander called ProKeys when I am creating these email templates. So two windows of time in the day when you check email. And if you're worried that parents might be anxious for a response, set up an automatic email to go out saying, hey, I'm teaching, or this is the time when I respond to emails, or I'll get back to you within the next 24 or 48 hours. So parents feel like they got a response, but you have a little time and you're not constantly responding to emails. The second tip is around reflection, which Angela really emphasized in this episode and being that reflective practitioner, like what is working? What's not working? What decisions are driving my lesson design and my interactions with students? And so figuring out one strategy for yourself that you think is sustainable, maybe it is a 30 second voice comment or audio recording reflecting on an experience a lesson, an assignment, an interaction, or maybe it's something like committing to a blog and posting a short 250-word blog each week about your experience, something that went well, something that didn't, something you learned. So figuring out for yourself, what is a sustainable way to reflect and capture those reflections over time so that we can really make that a part of our practice and a sustainable habit? If you have a teacher tip you'd like to share, something that is working for you personally or professionally to save you time, help you strive for balance, you can find me on Twitter at Catlin underscore Tucker and share your tip with me there using the hashtag TheBalance.
Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blast, expands the company's scope to include an engaging supplemental digital inquiry solution for social studies and science classrooms. Visit studysync.com for more info or follow the links in the show notes.